When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Midnight Myth listeners. In this very special Midnight Myth bonus, we have a nice little surprise for you. We sat down with Joshua Gillingham, author of The Gate Watch, which is an epic troll hunting adventure inspired by the Norse myths and the Icelandic sagas. Sounds up our alley, right? So for about an hour, we nerd out about all things Norse, from common misconceptions about the era of Viking, to Loki's most outrageous antics, to the evolution of trolls and dwarves throughout time. We also get the awesome opportunity to discuss how profoundly the Norse myths and Icelandic sagas influence the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, and therefore, much of contemporary fantasy literature. After our amazingly fun uh, episode series on Lord of the Rings, which was so well-received, and thank you for everyone who listened to that, this was a really enlightening conversation, and we hope you have as much fun listening as we did recording it. Thanks, and enjoy! would be thrilled. I am thrilled. I want to welcome Josh to the Midnight Myth. Um, You're only the second guest I think we've had on the podcast ever. Josh, welcome to the Midnight Myth. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Laurel. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I am a Canadian author of Norse fantasy, and my first book, The Gatewatch, has just come out. It's a troll hunting saga inspired by the Norse myths and the Icelandic sagas, and uh, it's been a long journey to get this thing in print, but now it's here, and uh, I'm so excited to be here talking with you today. Yeah. Yeah, we are so, so happy to have you. I'd love to know just a little bit more about The Gatewatch, kind of where you got your inspiration. Was there one key text that really set off this light for you, or has this been cooking around in your head this whole time? Great question. Great question. Well, you know what? I, I did not go to school to be an author. Um, I did take a creative writing course, and that probably is the first thing that sort of stoked my interest. I just needed another credit to finish my degree, and I thought, you know, I enjoyed writing, so I'll take this. Um, and, and that was my first degree in mathematics. My next degree was an ed degree, also not a writing degree, but I got distracted. I'm easily distracted uh, by a club that was hosted at the university called The Last Alliance Club. And you being Lord of the Rings fans uh, and Tolkien fans will obviously get that reference. But the Last Alliance Club was a super nerdy um, Lord of the Rings club hosted by one of the professors who um, uh, who was a a scholar of English literature as well as a fan of Tolkien uh, that would meet and discuss the books. And so I got connected with them. Uh, Through them, I got excited about uh, Tolkien's work. And you can't read Tolkien and not come across some of the references in the Norse myths. Um, From there, they showed me one of the sections of the library at the University of Alberta there that was full of the Norse myths and translations of old texts. I just devoured those. Like I read the whole shelf, the whole thing. It was right at the back of the third floor, like a dusty corner. Nobody would ever go. Um, and I also discovered the Icelandic sagas there. And I, I basically just binged this stuff for like, you know, a year. Or t- I, I don't know why I was so drawn to it, but I, I just binged it. And eventually all that, uh, um, all that magic, all those stories, all those myths, all those characters just kind of bubbled out uh, into what was the Gatewatch. Actually, the Gatewatch was originally intended to just be a retelling of one of the Norse myths, one of my favorite ones called uh, Thor and Loki Journey to Utgard. 
and it turned out to be a story of its own. It kind of grew its own legs, ran away, and I've been chasing it ever since. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so the Gatewatch came out in May, correct? Just a few weeks ago? Correct. May 17th, which is also Norwegian Independence Day. So that was really fun to uh, line up that, uh, uh, that sort of cultural holiday with, uh, with the release. But yeah, it's been out for about a month now. And how's that been going? Has it been amazing to see your book in the hands of people and actually see it getting out there? You know what? I spent so long writing the book and writing a book is such a weird experience because, you know, you feel like you're discovering all these exciting things. You're meeting all these new characters, but you are the only one who is meeting those characters right now, right? You're, you're exploring that world and it's, it's almost as if you've kind of entered a new dimension that only you are allowed in, right? And, and other people haven't. So uh, the release of the book blew that wide open. I, I get people emailing me now about characters. I get people sending me pictures of uh, the book in their hands. Um, it's surreal, honestly. Like it feels like something that I just imagined in my head has now somehow been birthed into the world and, and other people are exploring the world as well. So it's, it's, it's an amazing feeling. I can't describe uh, how surreal and how, how, how really cool that is. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I would love to kick off a little bit of a deeper discussion because here on The Midnight Myth, we absolutely love uh, mythology and history from all cultures. And I know especially Derek is a big fan of the Vikings and uh, the Icelandic sagas and Norse mythology. So I want to get into, uh, you know, some discussion around those uh, and see if you guys have anything to share with our audiences that we haven't been able to touch on on the podcast before. Um, and so I'm going to start this with a really tiny, very specific question, <laughs> which is... Can you give us a brief overview of the Vikings, the, the era of Viking? And I'll, I'll caveat that too, if this helps you get into it. What are some huge misconceptions that we as lay people might have about the Vikings if we think we have a picture of them in our heads? Wow. Uh, to answer that question, no, you cannot do a brief overview <laughs> yeah. of the era of Vikings. Well said, no. Derek. Well said, yeah. <laughs> Not possible. You know, it's interesting, uh, Josh, is that you came to Norse through the mythological route. You started with Tolkien, and then that got you to the Icelandic sagas, and there it opened it up. I came to Vikings through the historical route. Interesting, okay. I okay. Was yeah, I was taking a class on the Crusades, and my uh, professor was mentioned that there were Viking trade routes that were reaching as far from you know England, North America, all the way into the Middle East. Totally. And that the word slave came from the term Slav because the Norse would take Slavic, medieval Slavic peoples as slaves and sell them to Islamic caliphates because the Islamic caliphates would not purchase Christians because they're part of the what is called the Ummah, the umbrella of the Abrahamic faiths, but they would take pagans as slaves. And that the word slave came from this slave trade. And for some reason, I'm like, wait, hold on. Weren't the Vikings just the, the brutes that just raided the Christians? <laughs> so I went to my professor, a medievalist, and said, I'd like to learn more about the Vikings. Do you teach a class on Viking history, which was not offered at the school at the time? And said, no, but I'll tell you what, I'll open up a special, you know, a special class within this class where we can gear the final project towards Norse history and allowed me to study the Vikings while I was concurrently studying the Crusades. So I entered it purely from the historical lens. And that's where I learned about the Norse myths for the first time, you know, other than like Marvel comics with Thor and everything. So other than that, like brief sort of exposure. And um, 
I'll say, yeah, there's no like easy way. Like historians don't really have a cohesive argument around the era of Viking really was or is. Generally speaking, it's from 700 of the common era to 1100 of the common era. It's the time period where there is no Western Roman Empire and you have Scandinavian peoples who had developed advanced and um, more um, robust styles and faster styles of sailing who sailed all across the rivers of Europe and the Atlantic Ocean and left a humongous imprint on language, culture, arts, warfare, you name it. You can't uncouple that 400-year period, roughly, give or take, um, from the Vikings. They were everywhere from the Middle East, what we now call the Middle East, to, you know, Ireland, to North America. And, you know, it. I don't think it's an understatement to say we don't have the Western European cultures that we have today without the era of Viking, even if it's hard to define. Totally. Nice. Totally. And I would echo a few of the things you said there. Um, uh, I, I will preface this by saying I, I'm not a Viking scholar. I have many good friends who have studied uh, uh, Viking history, both at the master's and PhD level. And I really enjoy conversing with them. But I, I have to preface this by saying I don't have a degree. Uh, I am just a very, very um, uh, interested layman. But uh, one thing that you brought up, um, speaking with the Slavs, some of the trade that the Vikings had with Islamic caliphates um, is really important because often what we call the Viking Age, and uh, I think this will be a nice little argument we can have about what, what defines the Viking Age. Um, when did it start? When did it end? Um, uh, but when we say the Viking Age, we kind of take this like almost like movie lens view of history. And movies are great, but the problem with movies is you can only point the camera in one direction and you can only sort of see time happening in one area. So I'm actually working on a project right now. I'm co-editing an anthology of sort of intersectional historical fiction between uh, the Vikings and the Arab states of the time with one of my good friends, uh, Muhammad Ahmad from the States, who's a sci-fi and fantasy writer um, who writes sort of in uh, the genre of Islamic sci-fi and fantasy, which is super cool. And so many things were happening um, particularly in the Arab world, as the Vikings uh, were raiding and trading and causing all sorts of havoc across Northern Europe. There was the golden age of the Caliphate in Spain. They'd established this thing called the House of Wisdom. Other places in the Mediterranean, uh, some of the states were falling into war. In fact, um, he's informed me that this was the first time that uh, it, during a war, sacred objects had been stolen from Mecca and taken to other places. That was the only time in Islamic history that it had happened. And that was happening concurrently, which is super interesting. So I guess that would be my first point is that we speak of the Viking Age, but there's lots of things happening in the world at the time. And the Vikings were tied up in all of it. It wasn't just sort of like an isolated um, event. The second thing I wanted to bring up was the word Viking. Let's talk about this. Um, so you'd mentioned uh, uh, the Scandinavian cultures. Uh, they spoke a language called Old, Old Norse. And Viking is a really interesting term because Viking in Old Norse is both a noun and a verb. And to go a Viking literally means to like go adventuring but with the sense of you're going adventuring to, you know, discover new places and, and win gold. So it was sort of like a, a combination of adventuring and raiding. And if you were a Viking, you were someone who took part in that raiding and trading. That was, that was an action. That was a verb. That was something you would do. So when we speak of the Vikings, especially the Vikings as a culture, it's a little bit of a strange thing to say. I like to compare it to, let's say in Western Canada here, one of the um, uh, legacies of some of the early European people who came here was that they were in the lumber industry. And so it's a little bit similar to saying, you know, lumberjack culture, you know, I'm descended from lumberjacks. Well, 
being a lumberjack is an activity. You're, you're cutting down trees. That's sort of a, a, an economic role that you're playing in society. Um, not everybody was a lumberjack. Not everybody could be a lumberjack. Just as in the Viking age, not every Scandinavian was a Viking. Um, uh, by this definition, uh, by the definition of the word, the Vikings were the ones who were raiding and trading. Uh, that was definitely the sexiest part of it. That was the most exciting. The other people were kind of starving on these farms in Norway and Sweden and Denmark that were a little bit hard to scrape a living off of. But um, yeah, it, just that question, that tiny little question you asked, Laurel, um, opens all sorts of possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I love when you think of the era of Viking, you think of it as the quote-unquote dark ages. Yeah. This is the time, a period of decay, but you don't have a professional seafaring warrior class unless you have a few key benchmarks of your civilization, and one of that is population growth. And population growth is a, most historians, anthropologists, economists, mm-hmm. economists, pardon me, would say that that is a period of growth, literally growth. Your population is growing. You have pop, you have groups of people who are highly trained. They're highly trained hunters. They're highly trained warriors, mm-hmm. highly trained sailors that in their society don't have a day-to-day job to do because certain material struggles have been met, like the struggle for food, the struggle for sh- shelter, all things that you think of. The Dark Age is not prosperous. Well, it was the prosperity of the Scandinavians as well as the cold, rugged terrain that which they lived in, that led the Scandinavian to become an adventurer, to become someone to seek their fortunes on the sea, to be an explorer. And all of these benchmarks kind of run counter to the idea that it was a quote-unquote dark age. Though, you know, there's not international law, but, you know, there wasn't international law before the age of Viking. You know, one of the things that I always try to want to recalibrate anyone discussing the Vikings is like, Try to think of it if you want to think historically. Now, if you want to think in terms of myth and fiction, that's fine. But if you're trying to understand them historically, um, try to uncouple them from the very few sources that describe them as these brutish warriors, and that was the only thing that they accomplished. For example, in Old English, the Danes conquered the territory that would become England. There are several English words that are Danish in origin because of the impact that they had on culture. So how does a language get absorbed by another people? It's because they live together, they share their language, and then it has a huge impact. So, so many words that we currently have are Danish in origin that we're currently speaking right now because of the era of Viking and the impact that it has. So I think there is always this um, tug and pull with the Vikings when you talk about the misconceptions the misconceptions of just ruthless warriors that did nothing but conquer and kill and enslave and torture and colonize. Well, yes, they did these things, but there's also this whole other aspect of Norse culture that's worth in, that's more interesting, that's more complex, and we always have to ask ourselves, when you're dealing in an era and a time that is, compared to our own, less um, governed by set law and order. There's no constitutions, an era where more might makes right. Were the Vikings any better or worse than any other power that's out there? Probably not. Right. Um, A question I have, is there any sense of cohesion between Norwegian, Danish, uh, other Scandinavian cultures during this time? Uh, Or are we looking at very disparate tribes here? And one of the reasons I ask this is because we obviously have very few sources from, you know, before 
uh, Scandinavian cultures were Christianized, but we do have a really fascinating set of myths and shared um, gods and shared customs and rituals. And I'd love to know if there was any sense of cohesion there. Yeah, you know what, that's that's a great question. And you touched on something really important because I think in the historical texts, especially the Christianized historical texts, what they were seeing, you put yourself in their shoes, right? They were just, you know, on their shores and their monasteries, and they were seeing these terrifying Viking ships coming, slaughtering all their monks as no Christian soldier or person would ever do, and stealing all their relics. Like, so for them, there's just this sort of like nameless threat that's coming from somewhere in this void of the north, right? That's so, uh, you know, frigid and rugged that they have no interest in going there. Um the thing is, they, they were not organized, especially early on. I mean, Lindisfarne is 793, and that's where I would argue the Viking Age starts, because that's when, um, uh, uh, for me, uh, sort of the European consciousness is awoken to the fact like, hey, they're, they're these raiders, and they're kind of given this persona um, you know, there's this uh, description by the monk of the storm that happened the night before and that he saw dragons flying through the sky, right? They kind of become mythologized in this instant, in this letter he writes to the bishop. So, um, but this was not, you know, a king sending uh, his warriors to go and specifically pillage. This was literally like, like you brought up, Derek, I, I think this is a primarily economic issue. Um, the method of inheritance in Scandinavia, which is very closely related to old Germanic law, was that the oldest son inherits everything. Right. So you get the farm, you get the, the treasures, you get, the, you, you, get, you get everything. If you are the second son, you get nothing except to kind of be your brother's right hand man or, you know, second to uh, uh, your older brother, which siblings love. Right. Siblings love that kind of thing. Um, so there was a huge economic drive for uh, Scandinavians to leave Scandinavia. There wasn't enough land. There wasn't enough resources and go raiding. This was just a better economic option for them. Uh, another thing that you had brought up, which was, uh, you know, was there some cohesion here? Over time, there definitely was. And Eric, Derek can probably speak more to this, too. One of the most significant uh, uh, events in terms of bringing Scandinavia together was the campaign of Harald Feinherr, who was the first king in Norway, and ended up kind of uniting a bunch of scattered Jarldoms who had been independently raiding, trading, forming alliances, fighting against the king of Denmark, fighting against the king of Sweden, Um and if there, if there was a moment that Scandinavia sort of was concretized into kingdoms, I would say that was it. Norway was kind of the last holdout. And even there, a lot of the Vikings who did not want to live under a king fled to Iceland. And I think some of the most interesting stories that we have about the Vikings and Viking culture, and also the best preserved for reasons we can get into later, um, are from Iceland. And uh, that was in part due to the fact that Scandinavia had been united. It was moving towards more of a mon monarchical system like mainland Europe. And uh, uh, they wanted to preserve their culture and traditions. The last thing I'll mention is a lot of people think of Scandinavia as separate from mainland Europe. Um, but if you look at the history of the Germanic tribes, I mean, the Germanic tribes are raiding and fighting with the Romans, right? And there's mention of like the Germanic war god Wotan is clearly connected to Odin, right? So um, there's sort of a progression of history. They don't kind of just pop out of nowhere, uh, starting in, uh, you know, the attack on Linda's farm, or maybe a little bit earlier, 700, 600. This is a continuing story of Germanic tribes and even Gaulish tribes, uh, in some sense, in terms of crossover for culture, moving north and being pushed back by what be ends up becoming the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, I totally agree with everything. You know, the one thing I'd add, the nation state as we know it doesn't exist in the era of Viking. Right. So the idea that there is a country with clearly defined borders that has some form of a national identity, the idea of nations doesn't exist, the idea of um, a shared territorial and cultural connection based on the nation doesn't exist. In fact, we're seeing the formation 
of a medieval Europe that would come to define the nation state in modernity. So the borders are in flux. Um, you know, the the idea of a people is in flux. I think the the thing that commonly connects the the medieval Norse um, as a separate people compared to at that time what was happening in places that would become France, Germany, Austria, um, England, etc., was a shared language, culture, and religion. And that was a shared language in Old Norse, a shared religion in that it is pagan compared to the heavily Christianized medieval Europe that was uh, uh, happening at that time. And in fact, a lot of historians mark the end of the era of Viking as the end when the, the con- when they started converting the leaders that was from paganism into Roman Catholicism. And they say, okay, that's the demarcation. That's when Viking ends. But it's really not that simple because just because a handful of people who call themselves king of a place, A, doesn't mean their power is legitimate in any social contract sense. And B, just because they're Christian doesn't mean the people they command are. Even if they say, my people are now all Christians, they may still be performing sacrifices. In fact, it takes a long time to purge the paganism from medieval Europe, including medieval Scandinavia. And in some ways, a lot of those traditions live on today that we still celebrate in secret, not even realizing that they're pagan. For example, how we've talked a lot about how Christmas has pagan roots. So does Easter. All of these traditions are mixed into the tradition that became medieval Roman, I'm sorry, medieval European Christian. I was just I was I was just going to uh, uh, add that I really appreciate you brought up the language, and I think that's one piece that is missing in a lot of conversations about Vikings. Um, and it's a really important factor. Not only that it was a distinct language, it was um, it was phonetically very interesting. Vikings were fascinated with poetry. I get a little bit into that in my book, um, and the way the language was structured actually helped them create some of the poetic forms they had. But the disadvantage of the language. And the culture around the language was that they did not have a strong written tradition. And so they would often carve things into rune stones, but they were they were not a bookmaking culture. They did not have people creating these things. And when the Christian monks came, very strong uh, culture of, of uh, illumination and writing things down, creating historical texts, um, philosophical texts, that was just not in the Viking world. The Viking world is a very oral-centered world in terms of oral traditions, stories being passed down that way. And a lot of the reason we don't know a lot about the Vikings, why we have such like threadbare slivers of historical evidence for what their culture and their religion was actually like is because it was not written down in books. And if it had been, um, we would have a wealth of knowledge about what they believed and how they practiced, uh, what some of those uh, uh, pagan sort of rituals were. Um, Now we have just, like I said, just threadbare evidence of what was. And all of that is seen through the filter of uh, Christian Europe, because that is the, uh, you know, the individuals and the agents who are actually writing this stuff down. That is a fantastic segue to where I wanted to go next, because I want to talk about what those sources are, those things that we have now that are, yes, filtered through that Christian lens, but that give us, that shed a little bit of light on this culture. So let's talk about some of the key sources of Norse mythology. Let's talk about the Icelandic sagas. Just what are they and how do we have them? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So let's let's start with the, the Poetic Edda. So the Poetic Edda is kind of a name we've attached to a bunch of poems that were not written down all in the same place or even recorded at the same time, uh, but provide sort of the foundation for what we know about the North Smiths. And so uh, these are mostly just these sort of um, really epic, descriptive, emotive poems. Uh, one of them, Belespa, is probably one of the most popular ones or the most famous ones. It's called the, the 
Cirrus's prophecy. And in true Viking style, it's like first few verses and we're already into like doom and the end of the world and dragons flying over the sky. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome, right? Another really popular one is uh, Havamal, which is uh, sayings of the high one. And this is basically, if you're familiar with biblical studies, this is like Proverbs for Vikings. This is Odin sort of just giving one-liner pieces of, pieces of advice about, you know, life and trading and marriage and love and um, friendship, uh, those sorts of things. And so those are uh, uh, sort of a loose collection that were sort of brought together, perhaps most famously by the Icelander Snorri Sturluson in what we call the Prose Edda. Now, I've, I've, reading the Prose Edda, I was actually really disappointed. I, I'm going to be honest. It's, um, it's, it's an incredible document, but I was, I was really thirsting and craving for some real sort of Norse myth, almost Neil Gaiman-esque kind of, you know, uh, epic, epic stories here. And um, I didn't have an understanding yet of what Norse culture was, how it developed this lens that we've talked about. And Snorri is writing through a very Christian lens. In fact, he's writing around 1200 AD. And that is well past, uh, I think Derek, you said 1100. Um, I would say 1066, kind of Battle of Hastings would be my cutoff. And maybe that's too much of a sharp sort of cut off, but um, uh, uh, that's well past at least 100 years by any account um, of these things being actively sort of practiced and, and, and popularized. So uh, I think about this now, if I was to write a book about what life was like in the 1850s right now, 150 years ago, how accurate could I be, even with all the information that we have, right? And here's Snorri Sturluson in Iceland, uh, arguably the most remote and isolated place in all of Europe, trying to cobble together sort of um, uh, a collection of these stories and make some coherent sense out of them, which he doesn't do very uh, well. There's a lot of contradictions within his story in terms of even just like timeline stuff. There's a few sort of big events, right? Like the binding of Loki is a big event and the death of Valar is a big uh, event. And in his retelling, there's some confusion as to like, well, has that happened already? But I thought that guy already died, but now he's talking again and wait, Loki's here again. I thought he was bound. Um, so uh, uh, anyways, but it's an interesting read. Um, past that, we've got the Icelandic sagas. And uh, I don't know, Derek, in your course, did they, did they go into the Icelandic sagas as historical texts or was it more focused on the sort of like, um, uh, uh, like Snorri's work and uh, Saxo Grammaticus and stuff like that? So for the, the study of, of um, the era Viking that I did, it, it came with like a cautionary warning. So the, <laughs> that you have to look at the Icelandic sagas in completion if you're going to study Norse, but you have to take them with a grain of salt for all the, the problems that you said here, so from what I understand, if you're going to study uh, Norse history at like a post, you know, bachelor's level, so you want a doctorate in that, yeah. you're constantly comparing the archaeological evidence, and you're reinvest and reinvestigating the current translations of texts, looking for errors in translation to make sure that it's translated the most accurate way that that it can be, and that's about it. It's very rare that they're going to find a new source. So the Icelandic sagas have a lot of historical problems. Um, they were written, as you said, hundreds of years after the quote-unquote era of Viking ended. They were written by Christians, not pagans. So you can't, um, you can't overemphasize what that means. Mm -hmm. It would be as if Christianity stopped today and 200 years later, the Bible's gone. Yep. Nobody who worships the religion is is alive to ask and you're like i'm gonna tell the story of jesus yeah, exactly exactly yeah and so you can't overemphasize how pro like inherently problematic that is but then you have to ask yourself in that question if you're going to do that why would you mm -hmm. and the answer is because you really do want to preserve it so you have to like balance the idea that there's inherent problems but also probably really great intentions yeah 
in how someone writes down the, the, the Icelandic, saga, Icelandic sagas, pardon me. But you also have to remember that Iceland as a colony was very remote and very separated from Scandinavia. It was getting all of its information from the few trade routes that were there. The Icelandic colonies waxed and wanes in terms of importance and growth. It wasn't an easy place to colonize when it was colonized, and there were times where the colonies were shrinking. And out of it comes this amazing poetic saga and tradition. At the end of the day, when you ask, what's the historical veracity to this? It's always like, well, we have to cross-reference everything with everything else we know and hope that there's some truth there. And the good thing, I think, Derek, is that uh, in terms of my conversations with other scholars, it seems like um, people who study the sagas are leaning more towards taking them a bit more seriously in the last 50 or so years. I think at some point there was um, an attitude of, well, these are all just sort of made up stories like King Arthur and fighting dragons and stuff like that. You know, obviously King Arthur, maybe he was a real historical figure, but his adventures are probably just made up. That was kind of the same attitude taken with the sagas. But a lot of the sagas... um, and the information they contain have been uh, correlated to some archaeological finds. Some of it obviously is fantastic. They are kind of semi-mythic stories. Um, one of the most important ones, at least for me as a Canadian, is the Vinland sagas. And uh, a lot for many years, people thought the Vinland sagas were perhaps made up, that they'd found some other island, that they got lost and they confused um, North America with uh, another island. But the fact that Vikings had at one point... Uh, um, uh, uh, Leif Erikson and his crew landed in... Um, uh, 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 possibly in Newfoundland, where they found the settlement there, possibly other places, is is really important. Um, I was going to say something else, but uh, it, it escaped my mind. Uh, but yeah, so uh, uh, the Icelandic sagas were a big influence on my story. Um, they're great to study. Oh, this is what I was going to say. If you're interested in the Norse myths, I do not suggest you start with the poetic Edda or the prose Edda. Uh, don't like that's you're you're like um, you're like an archaeologist digging down layers. Like start with a translation. Um, by somebody who understands the scope of the, uh, you know, the sources, who understands some of the conflicts and is able to weave them into some sort of coherent narrative. Um, I would say very top level, really enjoyable read and uh, uh, by somebody who really kind of um, uh, loves the myths and uh, has spent a lot of time um, wrestling with them is Neil Gaiman's uh, The Norse Myths. His is a great sort of like overview in terms of who are the characters, what's the general arc of the gods and Ragnarok, and who's this Balder guy and why is he so important? And, um, you know, Loki seems like a good guy, but what's, you know, his role in the in the final Doom of the Gods? And then I would just go down layers. Uh, Kevin Crossy Holland does a really nice translation called um, The Norse Myths, Gods of the Vikings. It's a little bit more of an academic approach, and he's also got. Um, uh, uh, sort of uh, a debrief following every myth, talking about the sources, some of the contradictions, why he's chosen to present things certain ways. That's great. And the other guy I'll mention is uh, Dr. Jackson Crawford, who is an incredible um, academic uh, in the field right now. A younger guy, uh, extremely prolific in terms of putting out YouTube videos and writing books and um, uh, being an influence in terms of educating people about Viking history. And so I would start there. Um, and then once you have that sort of grounding, then you have sort of a basis to go back to those old texts and sort of make some sense of them and wrestle with, like you said, Derek, some of those contradictions and, and uh, migraines that come from trying to pull apart the threads of these different stories. I think that's a fantastic point, and I just want to reiterate it here because I think that is key to a lot of what we do here on the podcast is we search for you know our inspiration in history, mythology, and philosophy through our popular culture. And I think uh, a lot of the time, pop culture gets a bad rap. And 
in so many cases, it's the gateway to helping you like get so much deeper into a topic that you don't understand. So like, I didn't start being obsessed with the Arthurian legend because I started reading the Latin Chronicles. Yeah, right. Like, no, I I watched Excalibur. Like, I read T. H. White. I read Marion Zimmer Bradley, and like that got me to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And you go layer by layer by identifying what you find exciting, uh, and that helps you. That helps you dig that archaeologist metaphor is perfect. So I think that's wonderful. I just wanted to send that home. And, you know, how did the culture of the Vikings within Viking culture itself spread? How did they spread the gods? How did the heroic ethos become? How did the, the language get so beautiful? A bunch of people in a hall in the middle of winter with nothing to do, sitting with mead around a fire, and a poet telling the story, singing the songs of all of the heroes and the gods and their heroic deeds. And they were getting drunk and they were laughing and they were having a great time. It exactly. was entertainment. Yeah. And that that to me, if I were, if anyone were to ask Derek, why are you drawn to the Norse? It's because there is an air of pick up your mead, sing your song, <laughs> and then when the ice thaws, go out on a boat and find some enemies and conquer them. It, I, I heard someone once call it, it's sort of like the frat boy of mythology and history. <laughs> and I kind of gravitate towards that. But I mean, it, to your point, it was a popular storytelling mechanic to have a poet sing these sagas. It's how they were passed from generation to generation. It proved to a entertain people that needed entertainment in cold um uh, lands where they were indoors for most of the year. It provided a source of cultural continuity. Who are we as a people? And then it also provided a heroic ethos that would serve the Norse well when they had population growth and they needed people to go do things. Otherwise, that that aggression would turn inward. And I think you bring up a good point too in that you know uh, uh, how this reflects the people. And I think that's what keeps me coming back to Norse myths because if I was looking for some sort of definitive, uh, continuous story that was like nailed down and was 100% historically accurate, I would have given up a long time ago. I'm gonna be 100%. Uh, but what I do think the Norse myths provide, as you were pointing out, is um, they reflect the culture, right? The kind of stories you tell, um, the sort of things you enjoy, the characters you create. Uh, I, I mean, as much as those are perhaps inventions of fiction, they're also reflections of you. So um, as you read the Icelandic sagas, as you read the Norse myths, you're not just glimpsing at sort of a culture, but you're also glimpsing at a people, right? Their personalities, what they valued, what they feared, um, all those sorts of things. It's a kind of fascinating mirror. So since we're talking about popular culture, we're talking about how these myths paint us a picture of a culture, how do these sources inform the things that brought us here for this conversation? So number one, that's Tolkien, that's the Lord of the Rings, that's the Hobbit. How do these sources inform that world? And Josh, how does this inform the Gatewatch? How did you get to your story from all of this? We are all Tolkien fans. And so we, I mean, obviously enjoy his works. And one of the great gifts of delving deep into some of these sources that we've talked about is that you start to uncover little treasures. Uh, Tolkien himself was a linguist. He studied old poems. He was really famous, actually, for uh, his translation of Beowulf, which is very influential. My personal favorite, I have to admit, is from Seamus Heaney, but uh, he did a really good translation, too. And he's actually famous for um, in his classes because he was a university professor at Oxford with um, uh, with C.S. Lewis, another famous fantasy writer. Uh, but he was famous, uh, Tolkien was, for beginning his semester on Old English Literature by reciting Beowulf, but he wouldn't do it in, a, in an undramatic way. This was Tolkien after all. And he was uh, he would wear a full set of uh, English knight's armor, which he had. Um, he would put it on the first day of class and he would hide in the closet room 
as the students were coming in. He'd get there early. He'd close the door and just kind of be able to like peek out a little bit. And once the students had filled the room and it was that awkward sort of two or three minutes past the hour, where's the prof? What's going on? He would burst out and start his uh, recitation of Beowulf, um, you know, at his own translation. And this, this was their introduction to Professor Tolkien and what this class was going to be like. So um, one thing I love about Tolkien is I think he really understood um, the spirit of the Norse myths. And he really captured a lot of that in the Lord of the Rings. And as you read through Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, you'll find so many references. In fact, I would even say that the Lord of the Rings is built sort of over top of both English folk tales and, um, and the Norse myths. For example, names of the dwarves in the Hobbit are literally ripped right out of the Norse myths. And so those really funny sounding names like Fili and Keely and Bomber, those are all pulled out of actual, um, uh, Norse texts, which he would have worked with. And, and translated. even Gandalf as Gandalf. well. And the funny thing is Gandalf yeah. means light elf, but in the Norse myths, once again, full of contradictions, that's actually a dwarf. So why is a dwarf called light elf? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but that's a typical thing in the Norse, uh, in the Norse myths. So, um, yeah. And so Tolkien's work is uh, obviously hugely influenced by the Norse myths. But what's funny is uh, the Norse myths kind of fade in the background, I think, in terms of modern fantasy. Tolkien is sort of seen as a foundation. And things like elves and things like dwarves, um, things like trolls, all those sorts of things sort of uh, continue to evolve and to grow into what we know of them today uh, in terms of modern fantasy books, in terms of things like role-playing games like D&D and popular video games. Um, however, if you trace back the roots, a lot of that stuff comes back to the Norse myths. And what I tried to do in the Gatewatch is really sort of return to the original source, the original conception of things like dwarves, uh, the original conception of things like trolls. Um, not saying that modern fantasy is wrong and they, you know, you have to go back to the way it was, but it's just an interesting um, uh, experiment in for me to sort of uh, kind of make the connections, reconnect the connections that have kind of been lost to that original material. Uh, Follow-up question there, because that's an intriguing point. So tell me, let's take, for example, trolls. Mm -hmm. How do you think the Norse troll versus the Tolkien troll? So if we were to poll people who have seen or read Lord of the Rings and say, what's a troll? They'd probably say, doesn't like sunlight, might turn to stone, really large, not very bright, and is an agent of evil. Now, when we think of it in terms of the Norse myth, where is that incorrect, correct? Like, what, what do you think? You know, here's where we really start splitting hairs because trolls, um, while they do feature in the Norse myths, are also heavily, heavily influenced by um, sort of Christian folklore of Scandinavia, which was happening around, you know, 1600 to 1800 AD in uh, places like Norway and Sweden and Denmark. And most of the stories that we would have heard of as kids about trolls, if they were from um, some of the Scandinavian folk tales, would have been Christianized versions of some of those original stories. So one of the classic tales is um, Ashkeladen, which is the uh, a young boy, and his name roughly translates to the boy who sits by the fire, which culturally would have been taken to mean the lazy kid who sits around home all day and doesn't want to do anything. That's kind of what his name means. And uh, uh, he often goes and encounters trolls. So he's got older brothers who are constantly being scared away by the trolls, and he goes, and uh, they they are typically dim-witted. Um, they will typically turn to uh, stone if, they, if, if light catches them, uh, but they're much more connected to nature than I think we often see in, in modern fantasy. Um, and Tolkien, I mean, he's close to the myths. So Tolkien, his presentation of the trolls is, is fairly close to maybe what some of those folktales might have been. Modern trolls, for example, like trolls in um, games like Skyrim. I love Skyrim. That's a very influenced by uh, uh, sort of Viking culture and they're trying to capture the Viking ethos. Trolls in that game bear almost no resemblance to trolls in uh, Scandinavian folklore, as much as I love that game. Um, uh, often trolls are de depicted as being huge as mountains sometimes, big as trees sometimes. Often people can't tell 
if it's a troll or a stone. Uh, oftentimes they're going back and forth in the Icelandic sagas. Uh, trolls are also tied up very closely to things like magic and witchcraft. So often trolls are uh, ca casting curses or hexes on people. And um, uh, sometimes magical uh, items are needed to fight them. Grettir the Strong is a Icelandic hero who ends up wrestling with a troll at one point in time. Um, and so... Yeah, when, even the word troll itself, you kind of have to split it between what's the Norse myth conception of a troll? We're talking Viking Age, right? 800 to 1100. And then what's the Scandinavian folklore um, uh, interpretation of a troll? And certain artists like John Bauer has got some incredible artwork um, of uh, myths and fairy tales from that time. He is writing from a much more sort of Christianized perspective. Uh, his aesthetic is incredible. And pulling apart those threads is kind of part of the challenge. So my trolls are uh, 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 sort of a blend of the Norse and the sort of the Christian folktale version. Um, they're scary. They've got magic. Um, they're not the smartest, but they're super big and powerful. And if you walk by them uh, at night, you would think that they were a tree or, uh, you know, a hill in a swamp or things like that. They're very connected to nature. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about the dwarves. Yes. I was going to say, are you going to say dwarves? Because <laughs> I know this is a subject that means a ton to you, yes. Josh. I am, I've always been interested in, and this is true of myths and legends anywhere, with creatures that have one foot in our world and one foot in the magical. Yes. Um, creatures that can be sometimes helpful, sometimes they can be mischievous, sometimes they can be evil. Sometimes they can be your good fortune. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a fairly universal concept. You have, for example, in uh, Islam, you have the jinn, you have gnomes, you have elves, you have all of these, you have fairies, for example. You have all of these creatures all over the world that have these, like, partly magic but partly earthly component to them. Now, if I remember correctly, and I could be misremembering this, so stop me if I'm wrong. Uh, dwarves are also considered dark elves in Norse myth. Is that right? Or do I, have I misremembered that? Well, you're not misremembering anything. So this is a huge contradiction. In no, the Norse worlds, there are nine worlds, but different accounts will give different names to the different worlds. Um, elves are one of the great mysteries of Norse mythology. There is not a lot, if hardly anything said about the elves at all. And yet they have their own worlds. So Alfheim, for example, is the land of the light elves. What is a light elf? What do they look like? What are they? I have no idea. I've never read anything about a light elf other than, you know, a random name thrown in here or there. Um, and then there's Svartalfheim, which is uh, the land of the dark elves. What? Who, who are the dark elves? In some sources, they're sort of nodding towards that notion of, well, the dark elves are the dwarves. But then there's also a realm called Nidaveller in some accounts, which, and the Nidaveller is actually the term I choose to use for dwarves in the Gatewatch. Um, and that's the land of the dwarves. So how can the dwarves be living in Nidaveller, but also Svartalfheim? Are dwarves the same as dark elves? This is the kind of thing you run across. Like this, this is par for the course when you are digging into Norse text. Like, like who? There's no agreement onto what uh, uh, this thing is versus another thing. Um, so my question, or sorry, as for your question, maybe I, I don't know, possibly. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> I could tell you that in the Tolkien sense, the dwarves were always my favorite characters because they're they're bearded and I am bearded. <laughs> they are stubborn. I am stubborn. And I like their connection to craftsmanship. They like to do things. They're pragmatic, uh, philosophically, not necessarily politically conservative. You know, they're not going to like buff their traditions. They're not going to try to upset the order of their society. You know, they are, they are going to be stout and stoic and proud and sometimes a little foolish. <laughs> but when I encounter them in Norse myths, they're a little different. Sometimes they're kind of devious. 
sometimes they're a little mistrusting. They're still great builders. You know, they build, for example, um, Odin's spear. They build Thor's hammer. They build all of these magical treasures. There's a great story where they build... Um, Oh my God, Thor's wife, I forget her Sif, name. Sif, her uh, hair, right? Sif, yeah, they, yeah. They, <laughs> they build her golden hair because Loki got drunk and stole it because those are North myths. Because, because why, why not? not? That's what yeah. Loki does, because, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell me, yeah, how do you use the dwarves in your book? Um, tell, tell me about them. What do you think? Yeah, well, and you bring up Tolkien, and Tolkien's dwarves, I think, kind of form the foundation for what we think of as modern fantasy dwarves, right? Like beards, axe wielding, like you said, sort of um, Scottish, Scottish accents, accent. uh, very important, very important. Bonus if they got red hair, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, uh, in in my opinion, that's one of the, the farthest, um, one, one of the ways Tolkien kind of strays the farthest from the Norse myths in particular is his depiction of dwarves. Um, in Tolkien's world, there is this sort of dualism of good forces and evil forces. And that is another really frustrating thing for Western readers reading the Norse myths is there is not a sense of good and evil. Uh, the gods are not good. In fact, one of Odin's nicknames is Bulwark, which means evildoer, right? Um, the gods do not have humans' best interest in mind. Uh, in fact, they are very, uh, you know, happy to have some of the best warriors die because Odin is obsessed with Ragnarok. So if one of, you know, his great heroes dies, he's like, great, I got another guy from my army uh, in Ragnarok. And in fact, one time the gods really piss off Freya because they promised to marry her to uh, a giant and they, they, they say, okay, we promise this is all going to work out well. It's not actually going to happen. Uh, of course, things go totally sideways. Loki saves them. Freya is still really angry and she actually makes Odin promise to start more wars so more people will die and also to give her half of the dead warriors. So she can also have an army at Ragnarok and can fight against um, the giants at the end of time. So this idea of good and evil is very strong in Tolkien's world and was, I, I don't think evident at all in the, the Norse world. There was sort of, there was power, there was lust, there was greed, there was adventure, there was valor, but there wasn't this uh, defined idea of good and evil. So the dwarves in particular uh, in Norse myths, if, any creature could be called evil in the Norse myths, it is probably the dwarves. Um, they are constantly sort of seen as the epitome of uh, uh, greed and jealousy and lust. In fact, uh, after the gods had created humans in the Norse myths by seeing a few stray logs upon the beach and just speaking to them and giving them wits, uh, they said, hey, that was fun. Let's make some more things. And they found um, maggots rotting uh, uh, away and eating away the rotted flesh of Ymir, which is the giant they slayed to create the world. And they said, let's give these maggots wits and those will become the dwarves. And uh, so those are their origins. They were maggots that got brains, basically. Um, and they're very skilled in craft. Uh, they're very devious. Uh, they're responsible for some of the greatest crimes uh, in the sort of the, the tales of the Norse myths. For example, they slay Kvasir, who is this... Um, an uh, individual from Vanaheim who's extremely wise. He travels from place to place, sort of the Solomon of the age. And they're so lustful for his wisdom that they invite him to their uh, their dungeon and they, they slit his throat when he's not looking and they take his blood and they make the meat of poetry, which becomes a very central um, thing in the Norse myths. The meat of poetry is fought over between the gods and the giants. And Odin eventually wrests it away um, through some very devious means from uh, the giant Sotung. Uh, there is um, uh, seduction, there is, uh, there's trickery, there's slaughter, um, uh, there's a, there's kind of a race as they both transform into birds and race back to Asgard at the end. It's all very exciting, but the dwarves, uh, are, are not seen as, as, as nice creatures. In fact, they're seen as, as quite evil, which is a stark contradiction to modern fantasy where they're usually part of the quote unquote sort of good side, uh, and seen as being virtuous in, in maybe a more conservative way. Yeah. So in the gatewatch, uh, I wanted to reflect that, but I also wanted to press on that a little bit. Um, 
So the dwarves are depicted much more like they are in the Norse myths. And the main characters who are troll hunters have this very stereotypical conception of what a Nidabel is. Um, and the Nidabel, of course, is the term I'm using for dwarf in the, in the story. So they're um, deceptive. They're full of magic. They're great smiths. They're very uh, uh, envious. They're full of lust. And they'll kind of always try to trick or uh, trick you or lie to you. And in fact, the characters do get tricked right at the beginning by a band of Nidabel. Um, as the story goes on, though, they encounter other Nidavell and end up befriending them. And there's this narrative of sort of uh, stripping away those stereotypes uh, within the world and uh, pressing on this idea that one race is one certain way. You know, um, there's always a spectrum. So Wow. Super, super awesome. I'd like to <laughs> unpack a few things there, sure. if you don't mind, because one of the lenses that we also use at the Midnight Myth is the philosophical lens. So you talked about the absence of good and evil in the Norse mythic sense. And I want to push back on that a little bit, if you'll permit me, uh, yes, Josh. Yes, let's do this. Let's get into it. <laughs> I, would, I would argue that the conceptions of good versus evil in a Tolkien sense are about two polar forces combating for the soul of the people living in the earthly realm. Mm -hmm. Which, if we keep in mind that Tolkien was a devout, a devout Catholic and that that yes. runs through, not in the same way that uh, you know Christianity runs through C.S. Lewis's work uh, in allegory, but it does absolutely form a huge vein through his work. And the idea that the universe itself is a tug and pull of these two different polar uh, forces, one being good, the other being evil, um, originates from Plato. And Plato, and writing down the writings of Socrates, described the universe as a conflict between ignorance and self-knowledge. Hmm. The more ignorant someone is, the more harm they do to themselves and those around them. The more self-knowledge you have, the more virtuous you are, the closer you are to becoming a divine being. And that echoed into um, you know, all of the original scholars who formed medieval Catholicism were Neoplatonists for the most part, so that is absolutely there in Christian thinking. And it forms this idea that the best and the most important struggle are between these two little spheres. Good and evil, I would argue, now I'm, I couldn't put myself in the mindset of an ancient Norse person, but good and evil are very different in that good is to be a successful whatever it is you're doing. So if I'm a warrior, I'm going to be the best warrior. I'm going to fight. My job is to fight and if need be to die. And if I die, I get rewarded by hanging out with the gods. The gods themselves don't have the best interest in people in heart implicitly. They are not, you know, all knowing. They're not all caring. They're not all loving in the way that a Christian, the Christian God is described, but they are material in the fact that if you please them, they'll give you what you want. So the idea isn't that the gods are going to be there to benefit you de facto, they're going to ask for things. If you give them the things they want, they will return those blessings. And it's a very literal relationship. God is not, the gods are not transcendent. The dwarves are not transcendent. They live in the same plane as you, right? They live, we all live on Yggdrasil and we're all existing simultaneously. And I would say good and evil aren't really concepts that apply. And that if you were to ask a Norse warrior, what's it mean to be good? It's like, well, you know, to die in battle and have Valkyries take me to Valhalla so I can drink with Odin. They would describe that as good. And to be a coward would then to be evil. What I think is awesome about Tolkien is that he takes that mythic structure and then he applies that Neoplatonic, medieval Catholic sort of polar relationship to these myths 
that then make it really clear to us, the reader, who we should be rooting for and who we should be rooting against. Um, after all, it is the Christians that said the Vikings were bad to begin with, right? It was the medieval monks and Christians under the Viking sword and spear that wrote that they were awful and terrible and gave us this idea that they were all bad, which I think we should butt up against. So I would say to say that good and evil is absent is only to say that to what we define good and evil as in a more traditional medieval literary and Catholic neoplatonic sense Yes, that is absent, but there is another form of good and evil in a Norse sense. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it all gets to the the point that it is a significant shift in terms of the, the perception of the reader or the audience here. So we are used to a certain uh, conception of good and evil, and when we encounter this one, which has uh, different kinds of ambiguities than we're used to, uh, it's it's a little bit of an adjustment that we have to be able to prepare for. Yeah, and I would build on that too. I would say the Norse myths are distinct, perhaps from any other mythology I've read, in that uh, right from the get-go, like literally the but in the first few verses, we know the gods are doomed, all right? The gods are not going to live on Olympus forever, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's not going to be a second coming where all the bad guys get wiped out. Like, no, no, the gods are doomed. They're going to die, okay? And they are in power right now, and they have power now, but eventually... Um, that's going to crumble. And so if there, if there was a duality, um, and I agree with you, I think the Christian conceptions of good and evil um, uh, uh, are maybe a little bit too dualistic to to kind of overlay with these myths. It was a different culture, a different time. I think the central tension here, though, um, and a helpful tension for me to reflect on as I read the myths, is this tension between order and chaos. And uh, the world of the giants, the world of Nilfhel um, represents chaos, and the world of the gods represents order. Now, as we know, and I mean, this is a great time to talk about this, even socially and politically, um, order does not always mean good. All right. Order is not good for all people. It is good for some people, um, but it also harms other people. Chaos is not good for all people, but it can be sort of a releasing or a freeing factor for um, people as well. So I used to be really conflicted um, when reading the creation myth, for example, the giant Ymir uh, appears in uh, Gienagap and uh, literally Kevin Carsey-Holland's translation, the first line, it says he was evil from the first. I'm kind of thinking like, how can this, there's nobody else around? Like, how can you be evil if there's nobody even to be evil too? But I think what he's getting at is that the giants and the frost giants and the fire giants represent forces of chaos. And the forces of chaos were sort of, uh, uh, they were there first. They were kind of the original and order sort of develops out of chaos. And in fact, order only establishes itself after the gods have slain Ymir and taken his body, torn it up and made the earth, right? So they are creating this order. However, that order cannot last for all time. Um, and humans are a part of that order. And so we maybe feel like we side with the gods because we, we like that order. Um, and that order seems to kind of benefit us in the, in the cosmic scheme. But eventually, that order will crumble. Um, uh, the gods will fall. Ragnarok will happen. Um, but it will, it, will, it will all happen over again. There's a rebirth narrative as well in the Norse myths where, um, uh, you know, uh, the children of the gods will hide away in Yggdrasil. They will emerge from the tree after all the fires have died down. And they'll find like the chess pieces that the gods used to play with um, uh, in ages gone by. And so there's a sort of cyclical narrative where this, this sort of rising and falling of order and chaos are happening. And uh, I, for me, I guess, if there was a dualism or a tension there, that's, that's probably more what it would be than, than like a good and evil. But um, you guys are making me think of all sorts of new things here too. So I appreciate this. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an awesome distinction. Yeah, right. and yeah. right back at you. I love that idea of the tug and pull of order versus chaos. In particular, the nuances, because if we apply that lens to the dwarves in the mm -hmm. Norse myth in the strictest sense, 
they are for the most part second class citizens mm-hmm. yep. who are like their main job is to build things for their master class and every once in a while they're like you know they're not lucky and let me cut their throat totally you know, and, and that to me is a interesting lesson to say that these dwarves who are supposed to be the quote unquote that there is the evil ones they are the evil ones the closest in our like contemporary good versus evil sense but yet they also have to do the bidding of these more powerful forces, they certainly don't appear to be free. So why should they, you know, like the Aesir or the Vanir? Like, why should they like the gods and the goddesses? You know, they shouldn't, right? Of course, of course. And they're constantly lusting after what the gods have. I mean, and Freya kind of becomes the maybe over-sexualized um, uh, embodiment of this, but the, the dwarves and the giants are constantly trying to get at Freya. Like that's so many of the myths are, you know, a giant wants to marry Freya or a, a dwarf wants to, you know, spend, you know, nights of bliss with Freya. And, and so she kind of becomes a metaphor in some sense of sort of um, kind of uh, the, the everything the gods have, like the, the, the splendor, the wonder, the, the the riches, the power, right? It's It's everything all wrapped up in one. And um, from the gods' perspectives, them having that power and wielding it um, is a good thing. And that's what they want to continue. But for a lot of other characters, like you mentioned, that's uh, that's not. They're playing, you know, second fill to these uh, to these gods. They're making them treasures, but they're not, you know, um, they're not fighting battles. They're not gaining glory. They're always kind of secondhand. So, um, yeah, really interesting questions pop up from that. And if we ask ourselves if we are an ancient Norse person, why should we follow X, Y, and Z? The answer that we learn from the myths is because they are mighty, because mm. they are strong, because they have the power to uh, subvert others to their will. And that is the order by which we see from Odin down to Thor, down to the the heroes of all of the Norse sagas, force of arms, force of will, being a, a male warrior is what you want to be at the highest level. That is where authority and power comes from, which is where authority and power comes from in an ancient Norse society. And we look at that from a contemporary lens, especially contemporary 2020 America lens, and we see those power dynamics still coming out in narratives today when we ask ourselves, where's power come from? What makes it legitimate? How is legitimacy conceived? We generally think, oh, it comes from the consent and will of the governed, and we form a constitution and we form a rule of law, and that's where power comes from. And we find that for many people, they just live under threat of force. And I think that is a interesting dynamic. Absolutely. Um, something I want to get into as we uh, kind of come towards the close of this conversation is let's transition our, our discussion towards more specifically fantasy literature today. And I think we've already been uh, drawing some of these connections and saying, you know, this is where this connects here, this is where this connects here. But I want to talk about it a little bit more specifically because something we constantly ask uh, on The Midnight Myth is do our stories matter? Uh, and as lovers of the fantasy genre, like Derek and I are, we're constantly asking, does fantasy matter? did this actually do anything good for me that I read Tolkien at a young age? Uh, So I want to kind of get into those questions here um, and see if we can come any closer to an answer between the three of us. So I'd love to just kick this section off by saying, um, Josh, how how were you first introduced to fantasy literature? Uh, You've already told us a little bit about your introduction to Tolkien, but what impact did this have on you as a young person? 
That's a great question. Um, I was always a very imaginative uh, young kid, and uh, I had the privilege of growing up um, my first few years on the West Coast in Vancouver. My grandparents had an acreage and spent lots of time in the Cedar Forest. If you've ever been to like Washington or Vancouver Island, even maybe, uh, uh, those are the kind of places that are just so full of magic. You can't walk through them and not sort of come away changed. And so um, sort of playing in the forest and stuff like that and sort of growing up in that environment, I think had a huge impact. And in fact, uh, the world of the Gatewatch is extremely um, influenced by um, kind of the cedar forest, the old growth cedar forests of um, the West Coast, the Rocky Mountains, places like Jasper and Banff. Uh, and so those were, those were really influential. Uh, the first book series I remember reading and actually, my, my dad read them to me was the uh, C.S. Lewis's um, Narnia series, uh, which was a great, great book for kids. Um, uh, perfect time. In fact, my, my tattoo, I've got a tattoo in my arm here, and it's a, a picture of the Don Treader with a, a quote from uh, from Narnia. And so obviously, that's uh, personally meant a lot to me. The characters in that story are so compelling. Um, C.S. Lewis is a writer, does a lot of really interesting things philosophically. And uh, they're just they're just funny. Like, he's got a lot of great humor. Um, he's also drawing on elements like um, uh, dwarves uh, are present in the books. Uh, things like that. Uh, but he's, uh, I think, pulling a lot more from sort of uh, uh, the Christian mythos and uh, uh, sort of English folklore. So that was my first exposure. My uncle, who uh, was uh, uh, a bachelor at the time living downtown in Vancouver, and Vancouver is a very artsy city in Canada. I'm not sure what the equivalent, maybe San Francisco or something in, uh, uh, in the States. Uh, but he sent us The Lord of the Rings, and not just the books, but one book containing all three books. It was about this thick, and it had like this huge, it was huge. Like I could have used it to lift weights and it had like an introduction and a speaking elvish and stuff at the back. It was, it was massive. And once again, uh, my dad read it to my brother and I over the course of three years, um, the whole thing, uh, voices and all. And uh, it just so happened that as he was reading him, the Peter Jackson movies were coming out. So we would literally like finish book one and like six months later, we'd go see um, Peter Jackson's interpretation. So it was just, a, it was a very formative time. It was a, a thing that um, connected with my family and uh, was, was influential to me that way. Uh, my great grandma is also from Norway and she would uh, uh, often, you know, joke about troll stories. Um, I grew up in a Scandinavian Lutheran church. So there's a lot of sort of uh, Scandinavian folklore there. And so um, there were many sort of children's books that she would pass on to us as well as my grandma um, that also sort of influenced my ideas of what lived in the forest and what could be there and the possibilities. Awesome. Yeah, that's wonderful. What about you, Derek? I mean, I've shared this on the pod before. I was a really, I struggled as a reader very young and my mom noticed that I was very imaginative and really liked to play and would play with swords all the time. <laughs> and she recommended that I read The Hobbit as a, a book that I might be able to get into. And man, did I get into it. And then from The Hobbit, and it took me a long time to read it because I was very young. Then from The Hobbit, I went into Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Then the Peter Jackson movies came out and I went and saw them and I saw each one six times in the theater. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I saw the first one six times and I'm like, well, I have to do it's this a for tradition. each one. Yeah. It's a and yeah, I mean, that was, that was it. I also, my parents seeing that I liked the Hobbit encouraged me to play Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. and because it involved reading. So this was also during the satanic panic where parents thought, kids playing Dungeons and Dragons were doing Satan worshiping. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents were like, you should play this game. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hail Satan. <laughs> and they got me Dungeons and Dragons second edition, like starter kit. And so that helped me read as well because I was not a very strong reader. So fantasy is very much wrapped up into me learning how to read um, and to also play games. 
And playing games was in- instrumental in me being a social person, learning how to lead as a game master or dungeon master. And it's very much part of my core identity. And to ask the broader question, does it matter beyond my own subjective experience? You know, I would, I would argue that yes, it does. Because one, my experience is not isolated. A lot of people who love fantasy have similar style stories, though they might differ. They might have been Harry Potter for some. It might have been, you know, Chronicles of Narnia. It might have been another way or capacity. But also that fantasy teaches us that it is okay to imagine. It is okay to believe. We live in a post-Enlightenment, post-modernity, secular, rational society. And these things have produced tangible material benefits. They've given us iPhones. They've given us podcasts. They've given us the ability to podcast in Philadelphia with someone on the West Coast of Canada. (laughs) These things are really great. They've given us modern medicine. All of these things that we have today are product of this system, but they've also given us oppression. They've given us globalization. They've given us climate change and systemic racism. And all of these problems exist coinciding to the benefits. Fantasy gives us an outlet to channel our belief, to be able to have something to believe in that is a little more magical in a world that says there is no magic. And that gives us hope. It can sometimes provide us with escape, but more often I think it arms us with the tools that we need to combat the things that modernity has gotten wrong. For example, Harry Potter as a book against fascism, um, Lord of the Rings as a book about multiculturalism and coalitions coming together to defeat oppressive powers, Um, playing games, teaching us to interact with each other in a competitive environment that's good-spirited. All of these lessons that we can learn, that we can apply in our rational day-to-day selves and our rational day-to-day lives They start from fantasy, and they start with saying, I'm okay with a little bit of magic in this world. I'm okay believing in something. And once we allow ourselves to believe in something greater, more powerful, that's more good, even in the absence of any theological structure, in the absence of any, you know, like, we're not just joining a religion or a cult or anything, that's why you can have young people marching the streets demanding for universal rights. Because what is universal rights? We made it up. It's as imaginary as is Odin. But if we can believe in Odin, there's a chance that we can perchance believe in this idea like there's a greater good we should all strive for, such as universal rights. Anyway, that's my little soapbox on it. No, I think that's really interesting, especially when we think about how... um you know, I think for all of us, we were all introduced to fantasy young. For me, Harry Potter was definitely like the the big one, but it was n- by no means the first one. Like I, I was also read Narnia really early. I also was read The Hobbit really early. I read this really cheesy series about unicorns um, and how they had their own like fantastic kingdom that you could get into from the real world and you could actually be a princess of the unicorn kingdom. Like, it was amazing. This was a huge part of my life. Uh, and I'm still reading fantasy and I'm still reading sci-fi. Um, and so so morality, I think, is really um, uh, tied up into this because we in- we're introduced to it so young and it helps us to formulate our morality, formulate our 
empathy, our compassion for different groups of people. So like you said, Harry Potter helped me to realize when fascism is looming. Like it helps me pick out when things look really bad because I watched Harry and, and pals go through that. So my question here is, let me see if I can formulate this right. Because there is such a difference that we've already pointed out between the real world mythologies like the Norse uh, and so on uh, that inform a lot of this fantasy, is there value in building your fantasy off of that real world mythology or does it take a huge leap to get to the morality when that morality feels so distant? Does that make any sense? I, uh, yeah, no, totally, totally. And uh, if, if I could build off a few things that both of you said, I, I, um, I may preface this with, uh, I was gifted um, Neil Gaiman's uh, masterclass over the Christmas break, which is for me, was just a great sort of, I'd already written my book, but it was nice to just hear him talk about his process and stuff. And, uh, uh, and he had this great quote about fantasy and he admits to quoting somebody else. He couldn't remember who it was, but uh, uh, what he said is that um, he's talking about fairy tales, right? These, these stories, they're not yeah, real. Yeah. They're not real, but do, do they matter? And he says, uh, uh, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be defeated. And that's uh, such a powerful notion for me. Um, that was reiterated by uh, uh, a conversation with my wife a while ago. She was thinking about maybe doing a counseling degree. She's a nurse, um, so it's already sort of in that field, but was thinking about doing some, some counseling uh, uh, courses and certificates. And one of the things she came across was book therapy. And this is where psychologists will take uh, uh, clients on. They will, will talk with them and they'll create a reading list for that client to go through so that they can live through the experiences, some of maybe uh, the experiences they've had in their life with characters who are fictional, maybe some experiences they haven't had, but are sort of in parallel with some of the things they're struggling with. And they will actually be able to um, sort of progress in their own lives by living through these experiences with fictional characters. So I think without a doubt, uh, uh, fiction in general, not just limited to fantasy, but sci-fi, all sorts of different genres yeah, can, yeah. Uh, uh, can be hugely influential in, in developing and forming our characters. I also just wanted to uh, touch on what you said, Derek, about D&D. &D. Um, I was not allowed to play D&D &D as a kid for the exact reason that you'd said. Um, uh, my, my parents were kind of worried about D&D uh, &D and they had had some friends growing up that got a little bit weird. One friend in particular my dad had that decided to start dressing like a hobbit and um, walking around uh, a small town, Alberta, as a hobbit uh, back in the 80s, which, as you can probably guess, um, I know... Alberta is kind of like the Texas of, uh, of Canada. So imagine, you know, dressing up like a hobbit in Texas and walking around a small town and how well received that would be. So um, I wasn't allowed to play that, but uh, uh, a modern interpretation that involves, sorry, a modern um, uh, sort of uh, piece of pop culture that involves that is Stranger Things. And I, I love this series. And one of the reasons I love it is because they're playing D&D &D at the beginning. And for me, maybe this is just my fantasy writer perspective. Stranger Things is the story of those kids becoming their fantasy characters, right? Becoming yeah. the wizards and the warriors that they wish they could be. And they wouldn't have a sense or a vision of what those things even are if they hadn't kind of acted it out in D&D. &D. Now, it's not as fun to do that in real life, as they find out, as it is in this sort of fictional world. But it's important. And all characters, I think, succeed in some level uh, of, of achieving those um, uh, characteristics of those fantastic characters that they, they love to play. And in fact, uh, one of the most important uh, scenes, I think, in that movie is a scene where they kind of start to step away from D&D &D, um, and they're, they're, they're growing up and they're saying, you know what, this was great to help us grow, um, but we can't stop there. We can't just live in that fantasy space anymore. We've got to take some of those ideals, like you said, Derek, um, universal human rights. We can't just talk about that in fantasy worlds and celebrate that with elves and dwarves. We need to actually take that on ourselves now that we've learned about it, gone through that experience and, and implement this in the real world. There's a connection there. I totally, totally agree. And I think ultimately it's up to us 
what we're going to do with the impact that fantasy, mythology, history, all of these things, what that impact that it has on us, it's up to us to decide to make it matter. We could allow it to just be an escape. And I, that is okay, because sometimes you do just have to escape. You have to take a break from reality. But if it's going to matter, I think the actions that we take because we are lovers of fantasy are what will define whether it does or does not matter. And Laurel, I think you specifically, yeah, and I agree with that. And I think, Laurel, you specifically mentioned myths. And I, I would draw a distinction between myths and fantasy. For fantasy, I would say a lot of fantasy is built upon myths. But myths themselves, I feel, are almost kind of like the distilled essence of kind of what fantasy is. There's a great quote, once again, I, I can't remember who said this. It may have been even in the Neil Gaiman Masterclass. But uh, uh, it, they were saying of myths, you know, once again, stories that are kind of not true. Why do we care about myths? Myths are stories about things that never happened and about the way things have always been. And there's just something so fundamentally human about the myths. Um, like we were saying before, the Viking myths reflect the Viking culture and the Viking people. So the myths we tell, the stories we tell, we tell while they may not be about concrete physical historical events, are really stories about ourselves. And that's that's stories about ourselves on a much deeper level than um, uh, maybe even in some sense even historical stories are. Well said. I mean, that's that's a huge part of the essence of the midnight myth, too, is just trying to understand who we are and why we tell the stories that we tell and what we can learn from them. Can we take them forward into the real world and make ourselves better people, learn and grow from them? So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a crazy awesome discussion. I have learned so much. I hope that you guys have learned something from each other and that we uh, I mean, this has just been amazing. Um, so I would love to hear at the conclusion, just say, are there any other final thoughts on the role of fantasy literature, on Tolkien, on Vikings, or Norse myths that you guys want to share here at the end? I, I we, Josh, you go first. We've covered a lot of ground here, and I could probably talk your ear off for the rest of the day, but no, this has been great. And uh, uh, one of the, the joys of kind of going a little bit deeper into um, some of the Viking stuff, uh, Derek, with your uh, background in history, is that, yeah, we can kind of talk about some of these issues that aren't so surface, right? We're not sitting here talking about, you know, arguing about, like, did Vikings have horns on their helmets or not, right? We can kind of go to the next level and uh, uh, explore and engage with that. And I also just want to say, I, I love what you're doing with the podcast here. I think that there's... Um, there's a lot to be said about sort of uh, fantasy fandom. Uh, that's an important part of the culture, but uh, I really appreciate kind of the reflective uh, piece uh, and approach that you're taking to different fantasy works, especially Tolkien. And I think he himself would really appreciate that because I think that's the way he wanted his uh, books to be read. So yeah, thank you guys for hosting this. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Thank awesome. you for being here. Yeah, and Josh, so like plug away, like whatever yeah. you need, plug away. Everyone yeah, should read the Gatewatch. How can people reach you, find you, get your book? Give us the, uh, give us the plug. Sure. Okay. Here's the full plug. So the Gatewatch is available on, uh, crowsnestbooks.com. That's the best place to get it. Uh, uh, this is a Canadian story uh, published by a Canadian publishing house, which I'm really proud of. Um, and so, uh, if you're going to order the Gatewatch, I encourage you to order through them. It's also available through your local bookshops. Uh, they can order it uh, for you, a hard copy. Um, it's available as an ebook on Kindle as well as on Amazon. Uh, so pretty much anywhere you can find books, you'll be able to find it. Uh, it is The Gatewatch by Joshua Gillingham. And I'm hoping to follow it up with a sequel here very soon. So uh, keep your eyes out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Josh M. Gillingham, or you can check out my website, which is joshuagillingham.ca. That is .ca, not .com. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today. I can testify The Gatewatch is a fantastic book. Everyone, please go and listen and, or go and listen, go and buy and read the book. 
I have really enjoyed having you onto the podcast. And um, yeah, let's do it again. Yeah. For sure. Anytime. You, you, name and place. Yeah. Or time and place. You say it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And just to say really quickly, in case you're listening and you haven't figured this out yet, no, Vikings did not have horns on their helmets. <laughs> Enough there's, said. There's yeah. no evidence of that. That was com- that was made up by Enlightenment Opera. It doesn't exist. Darn it's you, not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For many reasons. Though I would argue that we know more about Norse myth because of Wagner. Oh, of course. You know, it, yeah, so he did more good to... Uh, revitalizing for a generation all of the Norse myths and the Norse stories, but he got that one wrong, and it's not true. No horns were on helmets. Kill and the wabbit. Kill, kill the, wabbit. the wabbit. I was going to say you got that's that's a topic for our next episode. We'll, we'll, that that'll be the next hour of conversation. Yeah, I I'm ready. I am so ready for that. Awesome. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. Josh, thanks for being here, and until next time, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>